0: My name's Andrew, I'm one of the pastors here at EV. It is great to uh, gather this morning, isn't it, and to dig into God's Word. Uh, as we keep uh, thinking into these different topics, these different deadly sins that we've been going through as a church, uh, we want to think today about how it is that we should live and please our God in the area of sexual purity. And so would you join me as we pray to God to help uh, us understand His Word and that He would grow us and convict us. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for gathering us once again this morning, and we do give you thanks for your word in which you speak to us. And so we ask that this morning, during our time now, that you would convict us and grow us for Jesus' name's sake. Amen. Well, in 1997, a book called I Kissed Dating Goodbye came out by a young man named Joshua Harris. More than 1.2 million copies were sold, and it was a USA number one bestseller. It was deemed a game-changer in the singles dating scene, (laughs) calling people to sincere love, real purity, and purposeful singleness. Uh, The basic premise of the book was that the best way to avoid premarital sex was to stop dating altogether. (laughs) To young Harris, he was 21 when he wrote the book, dating was a game that only hurt people. It was a practice for divorce and a distraction from preparing for life. He's literally quoted as calling modern dating as the training ground for divorce. Harris claimed that if you trusted God, if you just trusted God, he would provide the right person at the right time. And Yet some 20 years on in 2019, he and his wife announced that they had separated. If you were around my age, give or take 10 years, if you grew up in church, then you may be familiar with this book. You may have even been influenced by this book. It came to be known in Christian circles as something called purity culture, a Christian subculture that pitched sexual immorality as almost the unforgivable sin, that somehow the best gift you could give your spouse on your wedding night was your virginity. And yet in trying to warn people of the potential pitfalls of dating, I Kiss Dating Goodbye instilled fear in its readers. Fear of making mistakes and, and having their heart broken. So what went wrong for Harris? Why did this Christian social experiment of purity culture only seem to harm relationships, to harm the church? It's a heavy-handed attempt to control people's sexuality. Yeah, it may have um, resulted in a higher chastity at at percentage at marriage, but how many of those marriages are still intact today? As we've been working through these seven deadly sins, today we come to one that perhaps carries the most shame and embarrassment for us, for us as humans. It's the sin of sexual immorality, the sin of lust. Now, some people think that the Bible is is just a rule book, an outdated list of do's and don'ts, you know? Uh, Love God, don't have sex. Uh, Do good, uh, don't steal. But the Bible paints a much more glorious view of sex. Sexuality is arguably exalted in the Bible more than any other holy book or religion in the world. So what does the Bible have to say about our sexual desire? And where have we gone wrong in humanity? Because this is a problem for you and I. This is a problem for us in the church. It's a problem for society as a whole. And it's a problem that is as old as time itself. See, one of the misunderstandings within the church uh, that is that we've been told that our sexual desires uh, may have been part of the fall, As if prior to Adam and Eve eating the forbidden fruit, they were, they were naked and without sexual desire. But listen to what God says in Genesis chapter 2. It's on the screen. Uh, Picking up from verse 20. The man gave names to all the livestock, to the birds of the sky, and to every wild animal. But for the man, no helper was found corresponding to him. So the Lord caused a deep sleep to come over the man, and he slept. God took one of his ribs and closed the flesh at that place. Then the Lord God made the rib he had taken from the man into a woman and brought her to the man... And the man said, this at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. This one will be called woman, for she was taken from man. This is why a man leaves his father and mother and bonds with his wife, and they become one flesh. And both the man and his wife were naked, yet felt no shame." I don't know if you saw Adam's response there in verse 23. It's an ecstatic cry of delight. This, at last, at last, here is the one who is the answer to his longing for a helper that's suitable for him. To work alongside him in the privilege of serving God in the Garden of Eden. It's the delight of sexual intimacy. And this is the cry that's been echoed by bridegrooms down through the ages, Here, there is a natural yes to sexual desire and delight, untouched by shame. You see, we have been created as sexual beings, and this is very good. Sexual desire, in its first instance, is a good gift from God. Adam literally says, whoa, man, it's part of what makes us human, and so as we read through the Bible, we, we get glimpses of this uh, pure sexual desire. So in Proverbs 5, the instruction is for a young man to be infatuated with, the, with his wife's breasts, to, to be ravished with her sexually. Song of Songs is a book in the Bible about a couple expressing their delight in one another and the warm emotions of the heart. And then 1 Corinthians 7, husbands and wives are told the same thing, they're to consciously cultivate sexual desire for each other. Read with me 1 Corinthians 7. Each man should have sexual relations with his own wife, and each woman should have sexual relations with her own husband. A husband should, should fulfill his marital duty to his wife, and likewise a wife to her husband. They are to serve each other. And because they're sexual beings, a big part of serving each other is serving each other sexually. The wife's body belongs to her husband for his enjoyment, and the husband's body belongs to his wife for her enjoyment. She's to serve him sexually, and and he's to serve her sexually. Unlike animals, sex is not just so children can be born. It's also for pleasure, for satisfaction. Sex is for a man and woman to express their love for each other, to give to each other in the context of marriage, It's a great gift from God, and and that is how it's to be used. Around the same time as I kissed Dating Goodbye uh, in 1999, a band called the Bloodhound Gang released a song called Bad Touch. I don't know if you've heard the song, terrible lyrics, uh, but the chorus goes like this You and me, baby, ain't nothing but mammals, so let's do it like they do on the Discovery Channel. Really? We're just mammals? Nothing but animal instincts for the other sex. But you know, science tells us that our sexual desire is, is another area where we are vastly different to other animals. Believe it or not, we actually possess a stronger sex drive than animals. Think about it with me. We don't have a mating season like animals do, do we? Except maybe when COVID lockdown happens. <laughs> Too soon? But no, no, sex isn't just for creating babies, is it? God chose us and made us men and women with all the wonderful and mysterious chemistry and sexual desire and delight. Sexual desire, as God made it, is good. Sometimes we think the church is a bit anti-sex, right? But actually, we need to see that the Bible is very pro-sex, Don't go away from here today thinking that the lie that God is some kind of killjoy. (laughs) Because from page one of the Bible, God says, sex, go for it. Go for it, that is, in this way. One man, one woman, in a covenant relationship together. In God's economy, sexual desire has its proper place. But, you know, we've taken a good thing and we've made it into a God thing. We've really stuffed it up. Which brings us to the real sin of sexual impurity. See, the sin of sexual impurity isn't sex itself, but the wrong use of sex. It's taking the good gift of sex and treating it like it's worth nothing. The original sin of Adam and Eve wasn't sex or even anything to do with sex, was it? It was disobedience against God and His Word. Yet this is an area in which we're easily tempted into sinfulness. Temptation comes in the form of perverting something that is good and God given for our benefit. It's for our enjoyment and for the good of society and humanity. But we want it on our terms, not God's. And so we disregard God and we dishonor other people with sex. If you've got your Bibles open, keep them open at 1 Thessalonians, the passage we read earlier. Look with me from verse 3. Paul says this, For this is God's will, your sanctification, that you keep away from sexual immorality, that each of you knows how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not with lustful passions like the Gentiles who who don't know God. There in verse 4, I, I see there are two kind of concerns that I want to focus in on. The two concerns that should guide our sexual desire, holiness and honor. Holiness towards God and honor towards the other person. Because sexual impurity is what sexual desire becomes when that holiness and honor are missing. When our broken, sinful uh, sexual desires have no regard for God and dishonor its subjects. Sexual desire turns into lustful passions. That's what we saw in verse 5. See, the root issue in lust is how we regard God. If we don't believe that God is good and, and has our best interests in mind when it comes to sexuality, then we won't be inclined to listen to what he says on the issue of sexuality. We do this in other areas of our life, right? If we don't like what we hear, we disobey. I have a problem with my four-year-old sometimes in this area of life. If she doesn't like what she says, uh, parental guidance, I, I know what's good for you, she disobeys. You know, God has given us a terrific thing. And the question before us today is, are we going to listen to God on its proper use? Will we handle our sexuality in a pure and holy way? Because fully knowing God and being set apart for Him, as opposed to those Gentiles in verse 5 who don't know God, as opposed to the world we live in who don't know God, fully knowing God and being set apart for Him is is how to understand our right use of sexual desire. If you want to know what happens when our sexual desires disregard God and His good design, you don't have to look far, do you? Uh, sex becomes the premise for most of our marketing campaigns. There are shows on TV like Love Island that celebrate promiscuity. <laughs> Game of Thrones and Bridgerton are practically commercial softcore pornography. We become so conditioned to a sex saturated culture that Cardi B can perform a hypersexualized dance at the Grammy Awards and barely anyone bats an eyelid. It's madness out there. And yet God's view on sexuality has never been popular. And it continues to not be popular. But if we want to deal with sexual impurity, we must recognize the holiness of God. Because purity is living in supreme regard for a holy God. It's submitting to his way and submitting to the fact that he may actually know the best way to live. After all, he did make us. So society's got plenty to say about making sex safe. But, but I take it it's got nothing to say about making sex good. You know, any fool can have sex, but only God's word shows us good sex, proper sex, how it was designed to be. We live in this world that's dominated by sin and death. It's a world that has disregarded God and his word. And that's most clearly seen in the debaucherous areas of sexuality. We're told it's okay to sleep with your girlfriend and boyfriend before you're married, but God says it's not. We're told that it's okay to commit adultery because we're just going to call it an affair, a fling, follow your heart. But God says, no, no, it's adultery and it's wrong. When we disregard God, we dishonor others. And we live in a culture that is basically saying, I want to use your body for my pleasure. I do not want you as a whole person. Do you see how that's dishonouring? Do you see how that's lustful? Lust is sexual desire without a commitment to honour the other person. So uh, allow me to try and address three areas where, where lust is evident in our society and not only in our society, but also within our churches. We all know that pornography is rampant. <laughs> the landscape has tra- changed dramatically. Uh, it used to be difficult. Uh, it used to take a lot of time to obtain pornography. Um, you had to get hard, hard copy material. But now it's, it's covert, it's anonymous, it's instantaneous. The internet has only made this possible and it's, it's done so in a way that you now can have porn in your pocket, yeah? One website claims that 80% of the traffic comes from mo- mobile devices. It's literally at your fingertips, easy and con- constantly accessible. You don't have to be deceived into thinking this is a worldly problem. This, this is a problem that's rife throughout our churches. One study I looked at reports that 64% of Christian men and 15% of Christian women admit to viewing pornography every month. 7% of men and 1% of women admit to viewing porn multiple times a day. Pornography is wrecking our culture. 62% of people stated that it had been a significant factor in all divorces across society. Children, are learning about sex through porn, it's shaping their view of sex before they've even held hands with someone of the opposite gender. It affects our, taste, our sexual tastes, it results in less sexual satisfaction, it has deep impacts in our relationships, it leads to increased aggression and violence, it renders us users unable to enjoy normal, healthy intimacy and genuine connection. But the real problem with porn and even masturbation is that you're fantasizing about someone else who's not your own. That's someone else's daughter, that's someone else's wife, someone else's sister. It's disrespectful, it's dishonoring, and it's disgusting. God hates it. It's harming us individually and it's harming our society. And if looking at pornography is the vice of men, then I think the vice of women may be found in literature. There's an entire new genre now dedicated to erotica. When Fifty Shades of Grey came out, yeah, it may have been a bestseller, but it's playing on your sexual desires and drawing you into an unrealistic, graphic and debased view of sex. You know it's interesting that virtually there was no statistical dis- difference between uh, churched and unchurched women who read Fifty Shades of Grey. And not only do we have porn sites and, and erotica novels, we've now entered into a world where you can get a sexual pa- you can get a sexual partner faster than a pizza delivery. <laughs> Whichever way you swipe, our lustful desires for sex are on tap. We've per- Perpetuated an instant gratification generation. No strings attached. It's selfish and dishonor- dishonoring. C.S. Lewis is quoted saying this, to have sex without being married, to want pleasure without promise, to want pleasure without commitment is like trying to taste and, then, and eat food and then vomit it up. He says, a person who wants to taste food but doesn't want it to become a part of them, you don't want the commitment that is entailed with eating. You don't want the consequences of eating. You don't want the ramifications of eating. It's a dishonest view of eating. You want all the pleasure, but you don't want to have any of the responsibility. You don't want it to become a part of you. We know what happens if you try that, right? It's called bulimia. It ravages us physically. It's utterly unnatural to separate tasting from digestion. And it's unnatural to separate sex from marriage. When the Bible speaks of love, it's spoken of and and how much you are willing to give yourself to another. But in all these distorted views of sex, it's about how much can I get? And so we've we've been fed a lie by the sexual revolution. That if you sleep and live together before you marry, you'll have a better marriage. Try before you buy. It's a lie, and it's proven statistically. That if you live together before marriage, the odds of divorce are higher than those who don't cohabitate before marriage. You see, the Bible's pattern is, men, leave your father and mother, unite to your wife, become one flesh. A lifetime commitment. Yet our culture says, hook up, shack up, break up, repeat. Hook up, shack up, break up, repeat. It's dishonoring, and it doesn't deliver on its promise. And sadly, statistically within church, there are going to be some of us here today who are in this very situation. You might be sleeping together, you might be living together, and the Bible says that men, you are not dishonoring that woman. You're acting out of your sexual desire without a commitment to honor the other person. You're lusting after her. You see, sin turns sexual desire into lust because it makes sexual desire an end in itself instead of a way of serving others. Sexual sin thrills and then it kills. Sexual sin thrills and then it kills. And so lust leads us away from life itself. James 1:15 says this, then after desire has conceived it gives birth to sin, and when sin is fully grown it gives birth to death. Friends, make no mistake as we hear God's word on lust this morning. This is a deadly sin. It destroys lives. It destroys families and it destroys children. And if left unchecked it will destroy you too raises the question for us. Is purity even possible? If you've got your Bibles there, flick to 1 Corinthians and take a look with me at chapter 6. Because I think it's helpful to see the ugly effects of sin when they, when they take root in people. This is a list describing fully-fledged sin. And for some, these are hard words to hear. 1 Corinthians 6, starting at verse 9. Don't you know that the unrighteous will not inherit God's kingdom? Do not be deceived. No sexually immoral people, idolaters, adulterers, or males who have sex with males, no thieves, greedy people, drunkards, verbally abusive people, or swindlers will inherit God's kingdom. And some of you used to be like this. Don't think that Christianity is for those who are sexual successors. (laughs) Those of us who have got it all together, those who are respectable, those who have a clean sexual history. No, no. The the stories of the moral messes in the Corinthian church, uh, they're our stories too. And some of you used to be like this. You may have done those things in the past. It may have even been in the recent past. It may have been last night. There's shame and guilt attached to sexual sin But the truth is, we're all impure. Regardless of the extent of your sexual impurity, none of us have lived up to God's pure standard. We're spiritually speaking dead. But if it's in the past, it can be dealt with by God. And that dealing is in verse 11. Because Jesus brings new life. Verse 11 again, some of you used to be like this, but you were washed, you were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ by the Spirit of our God. Friends, the past is the past, but the future is going to be different. How? Jesus Christ offers forgiveness to those whose sexual pasts are spoiled. Sexual sin is not the unforgivable sin, as purity culture purports. The sexual damage is not irreparable. Whatever we have done, seen or thought, and whatever may have been done to us, the Bible speaks to us in grace. Jesus, the one who lived the perfect life without sex, the most fully human person in the world, he took our sin And he dealt with it fully on the cross. He who knew no sin became the adulterer, the sexually impure. He who knew no sin became sin for us. So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Friends, we have been justified in the name of Jesus, just as if you didn't do it. We've been raised to new life in Christ. Our eternal home awaits and our citizenship is in heaven. We've been set apart, sanctified, to to live differently, to live in holiness and honor to the glory of God. And so this morning we need to be reminded that we are not our own, for we were bought with a price. And so glorify God with your body. And because we've been set apart, we're able to live differently, we're able to confidently rise to purity. I've got three things that I'm going to say here. If you flip back to 1 Thessalonians 4, I want to spend a little bit of time here as we as we wrap up. You see, the letter of 1 Corinthians that we were just in was written to a church where sexual impurity was rife within the church. But 1 Thessalonians is written to a church who are living the Christian life well. <laughs> It's a helpful reminder to those of us here today, to to those of us who think that we don't really struggle in this area. We still need constant reminding that we're not immune to the temptations of lust in this world. And so Paul here wants the church in Thessalonica to know that God has called them into his glorious kingdom, but that this calling is also a privilege. It's a lifelong response and responsibility. They're called to live according to kingdom standards, that the constitution of the kingdom, citizenship, requires holiness and not impurity. And so in 1 Thessalonians 4 verse 7, we read, God has, called, has not called us to impurity, but to live in holiness. And so the first thing to say is that purity is a process, not a condition. The word purity is not synonymous with virginity or abstinence or, or having never looked at pornography. Purity is not where we begin because Psalm 51 tells us that we were born sinful. Purity is not something we can lose. It might be something we never even had. Pursuing purity is not about earning favor with God or, or making yourself a more attractive future spouse. Pursuing purity is a response to the grace and purity we've been given in Christ. You see, when God lays hold of us through saving faith, we are moved to lay hold of him. Philippians 3 verse 12 says, I make every effort to take hold of it because I also have been taken hold of by Christ Jesus. Saving faith is not a momentary thing. It is the act of the saved soul every day. And justifying faith is lust-fighting faith. Justifying faith is lust-fighting faith. Faith in God and the fight for holiness are not two separate things. So it's an error to think that that kind of faith gets you to heaven somehow, and then over here holiness gets you rewards. As if you're justification by faith, and then you get the power of your sanctification by works. It's a big error. We can't separate the two. The battle for obedience is absolutely necessary for salvation because it's ultimately the fight of faith. The battle against lust is absolutely necessary for salvation because it's the battle against unbelief. And The fight for sexual purity is the fight of faith. Because, friends, the God who graciously forgives us is also powerfully at work in us to change us. God does not just forgive us and then leave us on our own to get on as we did before. No, instead he places his spirit, his own presence in our hearts as his personal power to invade, cleanse and reshape our spoiled hearts. So whatever our story might be, it's the grace of God that trains us to take control of our sexual desires. If you're stuck in a cycle of sexual sin... In the loop of lust, (laughs) I need to tell you, friend, that there is hope. Just like any other addiction, alcohol, gambling, drugs, you can put the sin of sexual impurity to death. But it's the fight for control of your sexual desires. It's the fight for purity, and it's not a fight on your own. As Ray was saying, perhaps today you need to go home and remove apps from your phone that are leading you down lustful paths. Perhaps it's signing up for Accountable to You. You would have seen in your outlines that we have a, have a, um, a subsidized subscription to an internet filter called Accountable to You. We're, we're inviting people to today uh, and whenever throughout the week, sign up to that. Not because staff can see who signed up, but because we want to be as helpful as we can as a church community to think through ways in which we can help one another from stumbling in this area. Tomorrow morning, you may want to get up and grab a physical Bible rather than reaching for your phone. Spend time in God's Word, reading the promises to you. Friends, we need to take drastic measures to fight for your faith. And so whatever our story, we must never underestimate the power of grace to train us and to purify us. And I take it we'll become Christian communities who are dominated by grace instead of rules. See, just like fungi, lust thrives in privacy and isolation. People who struggle with lust often feel shame, which motivates them to keep their struggles hidden from others. But when we hide our sin and deny it, we can't confess it or deal with it. And so the remedy for lust includes community, openness, accountability with one another. Sheer individual willpower just does not work. And that's where the church comes in. Because we can't fight this sin alone. James 5 verse 16 says, Therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another, so that you may be healed. The Bible couldn't be clearer. Fighting sin is a team sport. It's a team game, friends. And this is our team. Look around. We're in this together. So if you can't stop looking at the wrong things, if you can't stop reading the erotic novels, if you can't stop your relationship that's sexually active outside of marriage... We're a community of grace-filled people where you can come and confess. Jesus has paid for that sin. Friends, part of being a Christian community that's grace-filled is doing life together. And so we want to be in small groups, connect groups midweek, thinking about these issues together, wrestling with God's word, spurring one another on and praying for one another, that we would be a a community that is captivated by Jesus as we walk the gospel in a worthy manner. And that, that leads me to my third point, that the purpose of purity is to showcase the gospel. It's to be a witness of the transforming power of God in you. If we learn to be pure, we will feel better. We'll be, able to help, we'll be able to love and help others. We'll be able to help the world to see uh, just how impure it is and to showcase the gospel. And I take it we all want that, for others to, to look at our lives and to think that there's something different about the way these people live. There's something good about the way they value sex. It's an old quote, but it goes, the greatest single cause of atheism in the world today is Christians who acknowledge Jesus with their lips and walk out this door and deny him with their lifestyle. That's what an unbelieving world simply finds unbelievable. So friend, if you're someone who's stuck in a cycle of sexual impurity, today hear that the gospel calls you to a new life, a life of contentment in Christ, a life of fulfillment as we together work to rise to purity. Would you pray with me? Our Father, we ask that you would make us so aware of the glorious nature of the sexual nature that you've given us that we might find ourselves in wonderful self-control. We thank you for your son, Jesus, for his death in our place, wiping away our sexual impurity. And we ask that you would help us, teach us to rise to purity, knowing that your grace has covered our sexual sin. Would you give us the courage to confess our sins to one another, knowing that your grace works mightily? We pray this in Jesus' name.